Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Business Leader Insight, brought to you today by our Buffnet Latham. For this live interview series, we talk to inspirational and successful business leaders. Today, we're talking to Chris Ormrod, who is the Managing Director or Chief Flavorista, as he likes to be known, at The Flavor Works. Chris is also a seasoned food and drink entrepreneur, having worked with some of the world's biggest food brands and also as manager director of Ministry of Cake. We'll be talking to Chris for around 20 to 30 minutes about his career and much more. Today's presenting sponsor is our Buffett Latham, and in particular their Southwest team who are supporting businesses and entrepreneurs like Chris across the region and UK. To find out more about our Buffett Latham, do visit their website, which is www.arbuffettlatham.co.uk. And for those of you who aren't familiar with us, do check our website at www.businessleader.co.uk. So we'll kick off with the interview now and welcome Chris. <clears throat> Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Very well. Enjoying a bit of sunshine, actually. It's lovely outside. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, Chris, I think it'd be good just to start if you can give us an overview to the business and, and what the Flavorworks does. Yeah, I mean, Flavorworks essentially is it's an ingredient company and we produce various sorts of, of added value ingredients for pretty much all of the major food manufacturers in the UK and in Ireland and a little bit on the continent as well, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Um, so we employ about 150 people, about 15 million turnover. So, we're, you know, we're not big in the world we operate in. We're reasonably large, um, but 150 employees give you a context. We produce about 13 million portions of ingredients every month. So that's anything from sauces to marinades to flavoured butters, cheese portions. So anything that goes on in or around uh, meat, increasingly plant-based foods, fish, uh, etc. Chances are, if you've bought something from the supermarket in the last couple of months, you'll have eaten something that we've made or contributed to. Uh, thank you, um, Chris. <clears throat> Can you just tell us about your your personal career as a leader? I mean, you, you've worked right across the food industry and, and different uh, companies. Yeah, it'd be interesting to find out more. Yeah, well, listen, I didn't want to be in food and drink, actually. Um, <laughs> I trained as an actor and I was miserably unsuccessful at anything ever related to becoming an actor. I went up to Edinburgh and uh, I think I was offered 30 quid out the back of a van doing some left wing agit prop. So I, with my tail between my legs, really, I went back to my hometown of Birmingham and looked at various jobs. And, and very, very um, fortuitously, there was an advert in the Birmingham Mail to be a sales rep with Mars Chocolate Company. I had no idea what I was looking My father was a civil engineer. My mother was a district nurse. And um, effectively, I, I went for Mars on the basis that they, they uh, offered a lot of money and gave you a company car. And I think that's where it all started. So, so from Mars... Um, and I work with some great people at Mars and people I'd still consider my friends today. Um, so I was in the sort of the, the, the class of, of uh, well, class of 88, I suppose. People like Justin King, Alan Layton, uh, Richard Baker, who was up until recently chairman of, of Whitbread. All of us kind of went through that Mars graduate training program uh, and, and a great business to work with. So from then I joined Hagenas, the ice cream company. I worked with them for, for five, six years. Then I went all the way down to Cornwall and worked for Samworth Brothers as sales director and marketing director at Ginsters. Then I worked I worked for Findus. So, I mean, I jumped around a bit, in all fairness, um, because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed going into new challenges. And I think I sort of turned 40. And at that point, I'd, I worked for Richard Branson for two years, setting up Virgin Cola as one of a team of three of us that set up Virgin Cola. 
and I worked for Richard, you know, a self-made multi multi-millionaire, billionaire. I worked for David Samworth, another, you know, multi-millionaire. I then worked for a brief period of time for a lady called Perwin Wazi, who was a self-styled the curry queen at that point, England's richest Asian woman, and a real inspiration. And I think I kind of wanted to do it for myself and see if I could do it for myself. So with very little money, but a bit of equity in my house, uh, I applied uh, um, and looked at a couple of businesses to buy and managed to raise sufficient money. To, well, in fact, I joined a little known business called Maynard's, which was a dessert business in Taunton, joined it, bought it, renamed it Ministry of Cake and sold it four years later. And actually, I, you know, I think working in, as an entrepreneur in the food and drinking, I've never been happier. It's been a brilliant, brilliant time. In fact, because I've just got to ask, what, what was it like working uh, with Richard Branson? Oh, it was fantastic. It was a real blast. I mean, he is every bit as approachable as he comes across when you see him. Um, he was a really superb character and we had some 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 real fun. Um, you know, I ended up, those of your, anybody who's watched is familiar with the original Baywatch series, um, Pamela Anderson. <coughs> uh, Richard appeared on a series of Baywatch and ended up inviting Pamela Anderson over to London for um because we were doing a commercial uh, for virgin energy which is our version of red bull and i was designated as the security guard for the day and uh it was the best thing i ever did thoroughly enjoyable <laughs> that, that sounds very uh, entertaining there chris um yeah. good stuff and just just uh moving on you mentioned your you know that quick growth uh with ministry of cake and, and yeah. how you exited the business can you just tell us the process you know uh, of selling a, a company and how did you find that um, well, the first time around, it was it was fast. I mean, you, I, I think, you know, I've never started a business, so I, uh, and that's one thing I'd like to sort of tick off on my bucket list before I finish my career. But I kind of regarded myself as a business developer. I'd buy a business that was a bit run down, and I'd do a bit to it, and then try and flip it on. But I didn't know all that when I first bought Ministry. I just had this burning desire to own my own company and run and be my own boss. And the private equity house, um, then called Matrix, now now called Mobius was superb and and the the guys there um I remember one of them saying to me when i looked to buy the business he said um and who are you going to sell it to and i hadn't even bought the business i had no idea who they were going to sell it to and he taught me a very valuable lesson really which was in many respects you don't make good money running businesses you make good money buying and selling businesses and so what it really taught me was was understanding how and who you're going to exit it to and once i'd grasped that relatively simple truth you then do sit about, set about your business, thinking about how you can make it as, as attractive as possible to a potential acquirer. I mean, I wasn't in the business of building a long-term dynasty, uh, and I'm and I'm not uh, even at Flaveworks. I'm in the in the business of building a business and selling it and realizing value for the various shareholders. So we specifically knew who we were going to sell ministry to the first time around. It was one of three three businesses, and when the time came to sell, um, in fact, we were approached first, and that triggered our conversation with the three that were looking at buying and, and two of them came back with an offer and one of them which was Greencore we then went on to sell the business into Greencore I found the process pretty painless um I found the post process more painful and this this will sound a bit niggardly I think at times but when I reflect on it you go from running your own business making your own decisions and uh, absolutely deciding what you do with your business to suddenly becoming part of the corporate world that you worked so hard to escape from three or four years previously. 
And it's the little things that really affect you. And, and I remember um, phoning up the chief exec's secretary to tell her that I was going to be off next week because I decided to go and take a week skiing. And she said, has um, Tony signed your holiday form yet? And I hadn't had a holiday form signed for God knows how long. And it, and it was a real stop in my tracks, followed by quickly, and you better send your expenses in before you go. And all those little things, it's that little removal of your of your perceived freedom. And I, as I say, niggardly, because you've got a bank account full of money and, you, and you know, you're relatively happy with that. But that that was different. So selling the business, I found relatively straightforward, although it is quite protracted. Any Anybody selling the business will tell you that you, know, you don't just rock up, agree a price and give them the keys. The agreeing of the price is probably the beginning of a six month protracted process where you go through a hell on earth known to most accountants as due diligence, where you prove or disprove all the arguments and claims that you make in your various selling items. And, and that can be, you know, that it can be smooth, but it does take time. I'm sure you've, you've been asked this uh, quite often. How has the pandemic in the last eight months uh, affected your business? Oh, um, lots of different ways, actually. We're a food business and, and clearly what's what happened, people still have to eat food no matter what's going on in the world around them. So we saw phenomenal, when the first lockdown, what I now refer to uh, as the happy lockdown, when we didn't mind because the world was lovely outside, that we saw sales in the month following absolutely rocket to the point where we struggled to keep up with demand. And then we saw two or three months where everything was quite quiet. And I suspect people had bought, were eating through the stuff that they bought, but also the, the retailers um, certainly went through range rationalization on shelves. And that affected us because a lot of the products that we supply are much more upper end niche products. So we lost some listings and that affected sales. Um, and the key point during all of that was keeping staff morale high. You know, staff don't know what's going on. They don't know whether or not they're going to have a job the following day. There was all this talk about furlough in the press, people in businesses around here being made redundant or being laid off or gone into short time working. And, I, you know, as, as, a, as a leader, this is one time where you have to get out of your office get your protective clothing on and go and mix it up with the staff and talk to them. And I spent day after day after day walking around. But actually, in a lovely way, getting to know most of my staff a lot better than I did before the pandemic had, had happened. And we put in place as, as much of the social distancing and the PPE as we could physically do. But when you are a small business with relatively small production areas, that can be quite difficult at times. But we've been very lucky, I think, in the West Country and particularly around this part of the world, where we've had relatively small levels of infection. And as I write, touch, or as I, sorry, as I speak, touch wood, we've had no confirmed cases of coronavirus amongst the 150 staff that we've had. We've had a couple of people had to self-isolate, but that's more for medical reasons. Um, one thing that, that has really happened, though, is that the whole food service world has closed down. Uh, we had a, a small amount of food service business, not a lot, but that, that just stopped pretty much overnight. And I just invested a couple of hundred thousand in some kit to make for the food to go market. Well, that ain't going to come back anytime really soon, I don't think. So I am reusing that kit for other things. So, so, but what we, you know, we did, we haven't built any real food service business up. The little bit we had has sort of waned and, and gone off the boil. But we've really now seen since September a significant increase in the number of product launches from the key retailers, almost as if. Altogether, they've decided we've had enough of, of restricted ranges. Let's get something more interesting back on the shelves. And, and as I write, we are busier than we have ever been. Um, 
and that's September. October has been our busiest October ever. I haven't got any more space to make products in November. Um, there are some lines I can't produce now until January. So, so in a sense, it's good news for us. We're really, really, really busy. Um, and uh, as I stand, in fact, we're just putting together plans for the best part of a three-quarter million quid spend to increase and improve our cooking ability. Because um, being blunt, we've run out of capacity. And I didn't see this one coming. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it's just happened overnight. I think it's, um, it's here to stay. So it's it's so I think it's you know, the business itself. It's been an interesting exercise for the planning team here, um, working on what they need from an ingredients point of view, making sure we can supply all the customers. We haven't laid off a single member of staff. We've kept that really high. We've worked hard to keep the morale going. You know, we hosted as when it first started, we'd host daily coffee calls for all staff that were working from home, and we were doing quizzes. Now we've, in a sense, got used to it, and I've got. Ad admin staff that are largely working from home and broadly speaking that's what that's worked well I think working from home has been a breath of fresh air for a lot of people but we're predominantly a production business so the key thing is making sure the staff come in they know what they are expected to do they know how they have to keep themselves distanced and look after themselves both inside and outside the business and and we're working from there so so we're working our way through it um, it has been difficult at times, but I'm pleased to say that broadly speaking, we've not been affected by it in any financial sense. No, that's, that's good to hear, uh, Chris, that, 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 that this is a positive kind of story out of these uh, uh, challenging times. So, so you're very much kind of in a growth mindset now and, and, and looking at how you expand and invest in the business. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think what we've done now is look at where we currently are. And it's made us realize that, that I think we always considered ourselves as an ingredient business, but we weren't quite sure which areas of ingredients should we be focusing on? And I think we absolutely know now where we see the market growth occurring and where it is. And so that's where we're looking to invest the money. And I have to give, you know, the banking guys have been really, I mean, it's easy, isn't it? We, we, we are, when I spoke to our bank um, at the very start of all of this and just briefed them on what we were doing, it was quite clear to me early on that we weren't a problem business for them. And we haven't been a problem business for them now. <clears throat> and I can only just imagine what some of the commercial banking guys and the relationship directors have had to go through over the last six months. It must be heartbreaking. I mean, when the pandemic first broke, I used to take part in fairly regular CBI conference calls in the Southwest. And I almost didn't want to speak because we had a good news story. And so many people had really difficult news stories, you know, talking to chief execs of some of the local airports and some of the dockyards and some of the, the marine businesses. It was, I mean, that was heartbreaking, some of that stuff. So as a business that is doing well, have you felt a bit kind of, yeah, uh, you know, you haven't known whether to kind of shout about it and, and share your good news. So is that something that you felt, is it? Yeah, I have felt very, you know, I'm happy to say we're doing well, but I'm not going to go out there loud and proud and yell how well we're doing because, you know, for everybody that's doing okay, we've had some members of staff here have been really worried about losing their jobs to the point where they'll, they'll stop you when you're walking around doing my sort of daily walk arounds and ask you, are we going to be okay? And you realize you can't answer these questions flippantly. They want to know because they're about to take on a mortgage or they're about to look at having another child or they're thinking of doing something else. And, and the answer you give them will affect that. And it, you know, you can spend a lot of time as a business leader looking at spreadsheets and working out where the business is growing and doing all your strategy stuff. But when you really boil it down, a business is a collection of people held together by a common goal. 
and you've got to make sure that people see your face as as the business as the leader of the business and understand what you're doing and where you're taking it and, and when you get that right it can be it's a great place to be but i have i mean i'm sure we'll talk about brexit in a second but there have been some pretty dark nights over the last year or two where you just think crikey we're we gonna get through this one okay and, and um but i'm pleased to say that we have so i yeah, i look to a generally speaking a pretty positive future right now no thanks chris and and we we, we will touch on uh, brexit i just want to get your um thoughts on on and you've mentioned uh veganism earlier and just how food habits are kind of changing and how you're seeing them evolve really yeah, yeah, no, I think, I mean, I started calling it vegan. I've now started rather clumsily calling it plant-based. I mean, it's, from a food trend perspective, it's the rise and rise of all things plant-based. We're seeing stuff now that I'd never have seen um, a, a while ago. And as a business, we use a lot of butter. So it's we've had to reconfigure the way in which we manufacture our products to be able to supply plant-based ingredients that we can certify and prove um, are, are free from any potential cross-contamination from non-plant-based stuff. But I'm delighted to say that a, a recent food magazine just gave one of our customers uh, one a, a top award for a product for which we make a vegan red wine glaze. And I was a bit sceptical at first, um, but I have to say some of the stuff the chefs are doing is really impressive. Uh, and so I'd have to, you know, clearly plant-based is where it's going to go. The other one is we definitely saw a simplification of ranges uh, in the retailers. And I think whilst they were tracking, we saw a simplification of ranges in food service as people cut down some of the, the ranges to concentrate on their big sellers. We've seen that flip around now. I think there's an absolute interest in more interesting products coming out. The rise and rise of localism, you know, the, the you'll hear a phrase, it's a clumsy, clumsy phrase, but climatarian diets uh, is becoming relatively strong. And what a climatarian means is a diet where you work hard on minimizing the carbon footprint of the food that you eat. So you'll be eating potentially less meat, You'd be eating potentially less cheese. You'd be looking to source as much as you can locally, and you'll be eating with and within the seasons. Uh, and all of that is is aimed at reducing the impact upon the planet environmentally. Um, the other trend, although it's not a food trend, it's a general trend, but we're seeing it is questions on packaging and how do you, you know, especially for the food industry, which is you know embraced plastic as a method of preserving food over a period of time. You only have to look at cucumbers in a supermarket with or without plastic wrappings to understand how long they can they can decompose or how quick they can decompose it. But we've worked really hard on where we can't minimize the plastic that we inevitably have to use, for example, on sachets of sauce. We're worked and we're not far off bringing out now recyclable sachet, um, which is appropriate for the UK market. That's been a real tough one to get that right. So we're seeing you know, lots of trends like that. Um, you know, when I was growing up, your food choices are either English or an Indian or a Chinese, or I suppose an Italian if you're really sophisticated. But now you're getting Chinese within Chinese, Indian within Indian. So you're getting the Goan continent or the Goan um, side of the Indian continent, subcontinent. We're seeing a beautiful, um, to my mind, a Zug paste. Now, whoever thought we'd be eating a product called Zug? Again, Zug, I always thought was, was one of the generals. Um, the bad guys in the Superman comics, but Zug is effectively a, a Yemeni hot paste, which is amazing. But and I never thought we'd be we'd doing that. We produce a bucket load of Zug, and of course, last year's top flavor, and you couldn't really move for not seeing this was katsu curry. You know, katsu is effectively a Japanese barbecue sauce, which we've adopted into popular mythology in the UK. 
so which I think is great. So, you know, for a business like ours, which is not a volume manufacturer of, of thousands and thousands of tons a, a week, but much more, if I use the sort of car analogy, we operate on the BMW 5 Series and the 7 Series end of the market rather than the 3 Series end. It's been great. I, I think food now, I've always thought food is an interesting place to be. I think food now is a fantastic place to be. No, thanks, Chris. That 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 was really uh, interesting um, there. And uh, just moving on to Brexit, as we kind of mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, obviously, we hope it's nearing its conclusion. Um, yeah. And I know it's something you've talked about in in you know when you were at Ministry of Cake as well, and the challenges around kind of skills. I mean, how have you found the these last kind of three to four years in Brexit? And are you prepared as a business? Uh, you know, considering your kind of international footprint. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky. I mean. Only 7% of my turnover is into Europe, per se, full stop. But 20% of my business goes into Northern Ireland, to the food manufacturers in Northern Ireland. And that is probably the one that's causing the most headaches at the moment. So we're, as, I think, as prepared as any business could sensibly be right now. Um, coronavirus has sapped the bandwidth of my management intellect for the, for the guys and girls here. Um, so we've not had, you know, we, we've had to focus on on short term firefighting. We've fed that back into various governmental bodies, but ultimately, from the first of January, you know, we're out of Europe. And and the problem with that, the complication for us is the trade, and the paperwork, and the customs declarations, and the administrative burden that's going to go alongside trading with Northern Ireland in particular for us. So we're ready for it. We've got pretty much everything done that we can physically get done right now. We're not, you know, the website through which you are going to do your export declarations isn't working as well as we'd like it to be just yet. And I still worry that it's going to be something like the 22nd or 23rd of December before we get the final bits of the jigsaw puzzle. Well, I've got products being delivered into Northern Ireland on the 2nd of January. So, so today, you know, we are writing out to customers saying, unless you're able to tell us what your customs number is, your import number, um, who the person is we speak to that you're going to accept. We're going to be charging you what's called delivery at port, where we'll pay to get the product to the port. You pay the import duties to get it to you, which is you know, DDP. Um, then we won't want to trade with you. So I think it's all coming to a bit of a head, but it, God, it, it's been a it's been a tough journey. That, that that's, Brexit has been at times the most frustrating business challenges. That, even the pandemic paled into insignificance. I think Brexit, from an administrative point of view, has been intensely problematic for, for us. And I think it will be for other businesses. So my prediction, really, I think, is that we'll, we will have some real tough times early January as we get used to the new system. But, you know, we'll only make a mucked up delivery once and we'll learn from it. We'll get it right the second time. So I'm hoping it'll be a relatively short term pain. Um, I just need to know right now whether we're going to have to input, input tariffs or not input tariffs, because the imposition of tariffs will be the biggest single headache that we find. My, my view is, simplistically put, is that our prices to customers will need to go up by circa 10% to cover, to cover those costs. And that will lead to food inflation in the UK um, in some significant substantive form. But, but, you know, here I am today, what, 5th, 6th November, um, and the Brexit conversation has gone noticeably quiet, hasn't it, on, in the local, in the media? as everybody's focused on the Trump-Biden election scenario. So I'm hoping that the Brexit silence or the quietness around it would indicate that behind the scenes, we're getting closer to some kind of deal. 
Yeah, that's interesting, uh, Chris, there, and, and the implications for your business on a deal or, or a no deal there. Um, and just where does kind of skills play into this, Chris? Um, you know, you're looking to expand and grow. Can yep. you service that with regional local talent or, or, or do you see an issue in recruiting talent from uh, Europe? Yep. Well, I can divide. I mean, the, the two ways of looking at this. I mean, we, we've got 150 employees, probably 110 of them work in the factory. And until probably a year ago, I, the vast, you know, I'd say two thirds of them would have been European workers of one way, shape or form, whether I've got Portuguese, French and, and predominantly Polish, but clear Romanian uh, and Bulgarian. What we have seen a shift in the last six, nine months to more English related UK workers. Uh, and that, you know, I broadly speaking, welcome that. I mean, I don't. I've always been relatively agnostic towards nationality, as long as people can do the job and do it with a certain level of energy and past passion and attitude, I don't mind. But we've definitely seen a swing towards more UK uh, workforce. And thank heavens for that, because, you know, for, again, from the beginning of next year, we will not be able to use European labour for love nor money unless we pay them um, amounts of money which are way beyond what a manufacturing business would need to pay to, for that sort of labour. So, so I think that's probably saved us in that respect. The, the other issue which you touch on is, is, if you like, the talent, the sort of the brain side of what we need. And the food and manufacturing sector is just not a sexy enough place for graduates to come and work, generally speaking. You know, when I left university, I know I wanted to be an actor, but if, if I wasn't that, you didn't want to, you know, you'd never have gone and worked for a Mars or a, a Coca-Cola. You wanted to go and work for some of the big banks. And, and, and now I would like to go and design apps or do software stuff. So we have got an image problem in the food and drink industry, generally speaking, attracting good talent into it. Uh, and that's something I've been sort of working on for age. I mean, I chair the governors at a school in Taunton. I do all sorts of business lectures around the Southwest where I can, specifically to young people, because, you know, since I've been in business, I've gone through two, three, maybe four recessions and never had a problem. So it's a, it, I think the food and drink business is a great place to work, but we have to work at convincing some of our younger um, people that it is the right place to come to and, and if they're there and they get it right they'll have a career for life well, that's interesting because and do you think there's more there's more needed to be done in that space from education providers yes. and, and, and people who matter yeah definitely and i think you know even the cbi who i've got a, a great respect for it does frustrate me sometimes when you're asked to fill in what you do and what your job is and you kind of go my job is managing director and then you look at industry and when the drop down dialogue box kicks in it's always it never says food it just says manufacturing so i get lumped into steel press manufacturers or electronics money i'm not we're a food you know the food and drink industry is a what's what do we employ one in 15 percent of people in the uk seven one in seven people in the uk are either involved in making distributing selling producing food and yet to a certain extent the government tends to pass us by on this um and i think that's a real shame and it is difficult to push on that and yet you look at the um, the outpourings over whether or not we're going to be accepting chlorinated chicken in the light of any US-UK trade deal. And you only have to realise how emotionally close that is to most people's hearts. So it's uh, I think it is a challenge for us to go. So I think it is one that we need to get better. I'd say get better. It's a never-ending process convincing people to come and work in this industry. Hey, thanks, uh, Chris. That, that, that's um, interesting. I just want to end our conversation by, um, you know, any advice you'd have for uh, people who, who are watching this and they're entrepreneur, or they might be looking to kind of start up a business in the food and in, in the food and drink space. I mean, it's highly competitive, but what, what would your advice be? OK, well, I think um, above everything else, make sure your product works and, and that it's, it's what you I've 
only ever really worked with products that I personally like myself. Um, so I could never, you know, I've got nothing against tobacco per se, but I've never sold cigarettes and I don't think I could ever realistically do that. I've always wanted to be a Ferrari sales director because that would be a job for me from heaven. But ultimately, absolutely believe in the product that you think is going to work and be be unbelievably furiously enthusiastic about it because if you aren't, nobody else will be. Um, network furiously, you know, go to conferences, speak with people, write for magazines, do as much as you can to get to talk to other people as well because you'll get all sorts of ideas from them. Um, you have to be persistent and you're going to get knocked down. You've got to get back up. You're going to have to get back up and get, get back up better. Um, and clearly you're in the food and drink industry. You have aspirations to grow any kind of size. At some point, you have to answer the difficult question about trading with the UK supermarkets because that's where the volume largely is. Um, I've got great respect for the UK supermarkets, broadly speaking. I think they are some of the best retailers in the world and they are good at what they do and they are good for a reason and they will absolutely come after you if what you can give them is what they want. And when I you know, was with Hagenas at a really early early stage in Hagenas's career in the UK, they were they really wanted us. Once other competitors had hit the marketplace, it was a much more difficult place to be. So trust the supermarkets, but respect them and deal with them with that level of respect. I think what's different now, perhaps to where I first got my career going, is that there are other paths to the marketplace. You know, you can deal with Amazon if you want to. You can build your own website online if you want to, and people will find you. Farmers markets are a much more important part of the retail world than ever, were, ever they were when I was growing up. And I think apropos my point earlier about um, one of the sort of consumer trends that we're seeing is this real re-emergence of localism and in light of the pandemic, specifically localism, I think um, you know, you've, if you've got a good idea and a good product concept in food and drink right now, it's a smart time to be in business. So I get after it. Hey, thanks, Chris. There's some uh, really good advice there. And I just want to say uh, th those were my questions. Uh, and I really want to say thank you for your time today. I mean, do you have a final word uh, for, for our audience, Chris? Um, apart from crikey, what a heck of a year this has been. Um, and I'm not sure what we all did to offend the gods in a previous life. But surely next year we'll get the American presidential election behind us. Whatever effect that may or may not have on our imports. We'll get clarity on what Brexit is going to be, and we'll finally start to emerge from the dark lands of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and if you're in a really good place right now as a business, and as those trends start to slip away and other challenges will emerge, I think next year could be a bumpy year for the UK food and drink industry. I really do.